This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Andrew Walter. Andrew is a Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne. He joined me in the studio to discuss the latest in Brexit ahead of the looming deadline. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio Professor Andrew Walter, who is um, a professor in international relations and he's based at the University of Melbourne. He's about to go on a trip to the UK, so he's stopped by before that trip so generously to talk about Brexit and all the related developments. And there's been many since I last spoke with Andrew. I welcome Andrew now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Great Hello. to be here. Thanks. Lovely to have you back in the studio. And um, I'm just going to play a 15-second clip from Channel 4 presenter Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow, but an actual journalist, who sums up the bewilderment of the population in the UK as to what on earth is going on with Brexit. On Tuesday... They voted against Theresa May's deal on Wednesday against no deal, today against a second referendum and a process to lead to a softer Brexit. The only thing they can agree on tonight is they need more time. But for what? Well, what for is a great question, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's not just the UK that's bewildered, it's the rest of the world. And the UK is in... Severe danger of becoming a laughingstock, um, I guess, particularly in the rest of the EU 27, uh, but well beyond the borders of Europe. So uh, their reputation for hard-headed, pragmatic politics and diplomacy is effectively, that era is over. Mm. It is kind of bewildering and we saw the varying votes being put forward. And so Theresa May put forward her next deal, which was it even very different from the previous deal that she put No, uh, superficially, uh, a little bit. And, of course, uh, there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha about her going to Brussels and attempting to renegotiate the deal. Effectively, she didn't come back with much, as Mm. almost everyone who knows anything about it predicted. Uh, She said and hoped that there was a little bit of flexibility on the so-called Irish backstop, but her own Attorney General confirmed that in effect the bottom line was uh, that there was still a substantive risk of the e- uh, of Britain sorry, being trapped in the customs union. Mm. So not much different, no, and that was embarrassing for May and made it very difficult for her to attract as many of the anti-deal voters to her side. And so she lost by, again, uh, historic proportions, uh, 149 votes. That's pretty huge. Pretty embarrassing. Pretty embarrassing, yes. And uh, I think she was selling this deal as being slightly more lenient in the sense that the UK wouldn't be trapped and there is this kind of anxiety around being trapped. Can you, just for those who may not have heard our previous interview, just give us a little bit of background as to what is the sticking point, which is really largely the Irish backstop and what that means, because you provided such great historical context last time. Well, in the late 1990s, as people may remember, uh, there was the Good Friday Agreement uh, in uh, between uh, the UK and the Irish Republic over uh, the future of uh, the island of Ireland. And uh, the Good Friday Agreement 
was, I think, in many circles in Westminster, but particularly in the hard right uh, anti-European core of the Conservative Party, largely taken for granted after um, after the early 2000s. And so 1998 isn't that long away uh, when they reached that deal, but in, in the campaign uh, to leave the European Union that that group waged very successfully along with UKIP, and a few other groups uh, in 2016, they largely set aside the difficulties that uh, the Irish question might pose for Brexit. They were wrong in doing so, and it became increasingly obvious that the European Union in particular was all about defending the weak and the small, and Ireland is more exposed than any country beyond Britain uh, to Brexit. And so the EU has rightfully, I think, been sticking up for the Irish and for the integrity of Northern Ireland and the deal that was reached in the Good Friday Agreement, the integrity of the Northern Irish economy and freedom of movement and so Mm. on. And so effectively, May's deal, uh, we ought to remember and we have to emphasise, May's deal is not a deal about the future relationship. It's a withdrawal agreement. Uh, So there are years ahead uh, of what that future agreement will entail and the, therefore the relationship between Britain and the rest of the European Union, including mm. Ireland. But what the EU absolutely wanted to establish was that Ireland and Northern Ireland in particular would not be sacrificed uh, in Britain's initial withdrawal before those future negotiations about the relationship will take place. Yes, and the EU is rightly protective of the Republic of Ireland because a lot of other smaller countries in the EU are looking at this as an example of whether the EU would go in to bat for them in any other circumstance. Well, absolutely. And if we look further back in history, of course, to the Second World War and the European Union was born out of the ashes of uh, the long civil war that Europe waged from 1914, even earlier, I guess, 1914 to 1945, the European Union was in effect uh, a collective pledge not to sacrifice the interests of smaller countries and minorities within countries and spread spread between countries as mm. you know the famous Munich agreement of 1938 sacrificed Czechoslovakia catastrophically so. And so the European Union has uh, in many ways a long memory and uh, that past history is looming in the background. They don't, can't be seen to be sacrificing Ireland. Mm. And the Conservatives, unfortunately, or at least a significant element of the right wing of the Conservative Party, have been willing to sacrifice Ireland. And that, that puts Britain in a very difficult, not to say uh, a difficult political, but also a very difficult ethical position. Yes, it certainly does. And we've seen the rise of a group which is called very originally the independent group. Uh, We saw first up Labor MPs quitting the party 
because of largely either Brexit and or anti-Semitism that was highlighted as being present and many have debated whether Jeremy Corbyn himself has had anti-Semitic views or not. Mm. Um, He was egged himself recently. um, (laughs) But then we also saw Conservative Tories quit their party as well to join this coalition of now independence. Yes, only a handful of Tories. Uh, and And they were largely women. Yes, they were. Uh, And women upset with the direction of the Conservative Party under Theresa May herself, of course, Mm. a woman. Uh, So that in itself is interesting. What what has happened, uh, and it hasn't been very long, but uh, a week and a half or so is a long time in UK politics, particularly these days, that uh, independent group seems to have faded a bit. Um, And what's clear is that both of the major parties are deeply riven internally and Mm. cannot agree on anything. Theresa May has lost control not only of her party but of cabinet. There is an effective hardcore, the so-called European Research Group of anti-Europeans within her own party and she has in effect been held hostage by them and hasn't been able to break out of the narrow party politics that might have allowed her to to forge cross-party parliamentary-wide coalitions uh, to achieve a softer Brexit. The Labour Party, on the other side, is also deeply riven. And so we've got this independent research group, which many people initially thought, aha, finally, the old traditional party politics, which is clearly not working, is breaking down. And maybe uh, the parliamentary majority that favours a softer form of Brexit than May's deal will now take over and reassert control of the process that clearly Theresa May has lost. But it hasn't turned out, at least so far, to be the case. Uh, So what's striking is not only that May has lost control of the Brexit process and those even cabinet rebellions uh, last week in terms of voting against government motions and so on. Um, So the cabinet is deeply divided. Um, But uh, what's clear is that not only has May lost control, but that Parliament has so far been unable to take control either through the mechanism of a breakaway independent group or through a cross-parliamentary coalition forming Mm. that could wrest control of the process from Theresa May. So UK politics is in a complete mess. It's paralysed effectively and Europe is rightly throwing up its hands and saying, we've done all we can. Mm. We're not going to sacrifice Ireland. You tell us what we want and we'll move forward. Well, yes, it's really imploding. Mm. And as you say, there's the EU who is exasperated because they've had to renegotiate a deal that they said, that's it. There's no more change here. And some people thought the EU was holding out till closer to the deadline to have more leverage, but that was not the case. They're just not interested in renegotiating. It's Theresa May that's holding out uh, to gain more leverage at the last minute. And so she is going to put back to the parliament uh, the deal for a last time, hopefully. It's well, last. well, the we third time. Uh, yes, the so-called meaningful vote three. Yeah. And possibly even if she fails in that, which is Another. very likely, uh, the meaningful vote four. Jeez. And uh, the countdown to March 29th uh, is uh, accelerating while all this is going on. However, this may not happen. Uh, the Speaker of the House yes. uh, yesterday uh, said that he would not allow... A third vote on Theresa May's bill 
which would in effect be a vote on something that was not substantially changed. Uh, Harking back to a, to go further back in history, a 1604 convention, which says that effectively you can't keep asking Parliament to vote on the same thing, Mm. which, you know, to most people I I think would sound pretty reasonable. reasonable. Mm. Theresa May, I mean... Think about the extraordinary irony of this. Theresa May is insisting that it would be completely undemocratic to go against this so-called will of the people Mm -hmm. to put uh, the the question of Brexit, now that much more information is available, uh, back to the British people. No, that would be undemocratic and unacceptable. And yet she persists in suggesting that her deal ought to be continually put back into Parliament Mm. while they voted against it the first two times at historic massive levels and that this would be deeply democratic to keep putting it back to them until they give her the right answer. It's extraordinary and deeply hypocritical. And condescending. Yes. I know a lot of countries, particularly Scotland, have been just like, really? (laughs) 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 Why are we part of this again? (laughs) Well, yeah. And they're not that great themselves in terms of... Advocating in the UK Parliament at the moment. They're not, but they're also trapped. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about, you know, the UK being trapped in a customs union because of uh, this withdrawal agreement. Uh, Scotland, to a substantial degree, doesn't have a lot of options either. So they're over a barrel because effectively the whole process of disentangling uh, 40 plus years um, of integration between the UK and the rest of the European Union has sent a very clear message to Scotland, Edinburgh, mm-hmm. that disentangling more than 300 years of integration between Scotland and the rest of the UK would be even more difficult. So they don't have a lot of leverage. No, not at all. Yes, it is really interesting to watch this unfold because, as we've said before, Scotland pretty clearly said they wanted to stay in the EU. So, you know, when when various parts of England and Scotland have said, no, Mm. we want to stay, and not everyone voted because, as we know, there was not compulsory voting for this. A lot of um, people who've been interviewed on UK television regret not having voted um, now that they're aware Mm. of the kind of magnitude of leaving the EU. And also, as you said, the implications of the Irish border and this becoming such a really, you know, a core issue, a key problem. And even some people who said they voted to leave have changed their vote because of this information. So given that we saw these kind of this exodus of maybe a handful of MPs on either side of politics move into an independent group. We saw Jeremy Corbyn react and finally give some concession, which was, OK, Labor will support a people's vote. That that was put to the parliament last week, I believe, and it was not supported. No, no, not by a very wide, uh, by a very wide margin. It was rejected. So, the problem is um, that even the so-called People's Vote campaign uh, weren't sure that this was the right time, mm. and it may be that the right time to introduce a second referendum motion in Parliament uh, that would have a plausible chance of passing would be after May's deal has definitively failed. Yeah, uh, it may be. Um, that uh, because the Speaker prevents a so-called third meaningful vote, that it has already failed, but we won't know for a couple of days. And until Theresa May goes 
to Brussels on Thursday and Boris Johnson has told her, well, you know, it'd be easy to uh, go back and renegotiate uh, this deal yet again. Uh, Of course, if he's serious about that, it suggests that he learned nothing Nothing, from his period as Foreign Secretary. Uh, The EU is not going to budge. No. Well, he he didn't learn a whole lot at all in politics in general because he was part of the, the Leave... Yes. Campaign, one of the loudest voices. Indeed, that's right, absolutely, and insisted that Ireland wouldn't be an issue, wouldn't be a problem, it would be easy. Um, More funding to the NHS. That's right, £350 million a week. There would be a massive bonus uh, from leaving. It would be easy to reach a deal. So everything we've learned in the succeeding two and a half years about has utterly disproved all of those vacuous and deeply misleading claims that unfortunately yes as you said earlier too many people i think in the british electorate took seriously they thought it would be easy that the costs would be minimal and the benefits substantial that is i think the consensus suggests that this is complete was completely misleading we now know that and therefore the case for a second referendum is substantial because well and in addition, there was Rus- Russian interference yes. uh, in the campaign finance for the election. So, uh, and the government doesn't want to investigate that seriously, unlike in the United States. It's pretty crazy. A lot of people have criticised the BBC for not covering that issue for so long when mm. other journalists were, particularly at The Guardian. Yeah. And we just saw an article uh, in The New Yorker, very extensive article on Aaron Banks, who was mm. you know, one of the key people who bankrolled yep. the Leave campaign. Yes, that's right. So we saw a range of votes being put up in succession, as we heard from Jon Snow before. And we did see a decent amount of support for a delay. And I'd like to understand, I guess, the implications of what a delay might be, because there's all this discussion around how long the delay would be, what would happen if it was a very long delay, what even is the point of delaying it if you're not going to reach a consensus and it won't be able to be renegotiated. So what what was the Parliament voting on when it was talking about delaying Brexit and extending, seeking an extension from the EU of that article that Britain has actually invoked. Yeah, that's right. So, look, uh, the the essential thing about Parliament voting against... Um, uh, well, sorry, for a delay and thus against a so-called cliff-edge no-deal on mm. um, March 29th was to avoid the catastrophic consequences and uh, very disruptive consequences. I'm, as you said, flying into Britain uh, two days later uh, yes. and I'm not the only one who's a little worried about what might happen at ports in terms of medicines um, uh, and all sorts of other uh, services and goods that currently flow fairly freely across um, the UK-European borders. So um, Parliament wants to avoid that. Again, this is a clear signal that Parliament knows what it doesn't want, Mm. but it doesn't have a sufficient consensus within and across Parliament or a majority consensus to insist on precise details of what it wants. So it votes against a no deal, which is a bit like voting Mm. against global warming, um, without saying what should be done to mitigate 
and prevent global warming. Um, so it doesn't want a no deal. Doesn't want a no deal. It wants an extension, but is unable at the moment to specify how long. Theresa May has accepted that she will need, if her deal passes in the so-called meaningful vote three mm. or four, five, six, seven, eight, um, that she will need a so-called technical. Uh, extension to allow for Parliament to ratify the deal and to uh, uh, adopt some implementing um, legislation and policies. Hmm. So even she, in the best possible circumstances, wants an extension because this has run right down to the wire and the UK is not ready. Um, the UK uh, would obtain that from the European Union. Mm. Uh, Is it up to the European Union to say yes or no? Absolutely. The EU 27 must unanimously vote to accept any extension of Article 50. If Theresa May's deal fails, which looks likely, uh, then the UK is going to need more time. Again, from a rational, sensible view of politics, the UK will need more time because, as I said earlier, there is patently no consensus within Parliament on what to do as a plan B. Theresa May's plan B was, as she said, no deal is better than a bad deal. Mm. Well, she's got to come back with a bad deal (laughs) after more than a year of negotiations. So... Parliament has said, we don't want your no deal, your plan B. But they don't have a plan C. Uh, So there have been suggestions that if May's deal fails in Parliament, and we'll know that in a couple of days, let's hope, then there should be a series of consecutive votes on alternative options, which would include things like a second referendum, Mm. May's deal up or down or remain, a new election, a, uh, a general election, other potential options, uh, but, you know, specifying things like Norway Plus and Canada Plus and so on are, are on the table. But but at the moment, it doesn't appear that there would be a majority in Parliament for any single one of those options. Mm. So that's the fundamental problem. When you talk about Norway, is this what people refer to as a softer Brexit? Yes. So Norway is in the single market and the customs union. So Labour's position, um, as I think we talked about last time, is to remain in the customs union and that would essentially protect open trade in goods, or at least so Labour thinks. It wouldn't actually in practice because Mm. most goods trade is in fact highly dependent on technical standards, uh, equivalents and all of that. Very true, yes. Which is... Uh, which is all about what essentially what the single market is all about, uh, equivalence in technical standards and so on. So Norway uh, has a deal with, uh, with the European Union. It's a member of the European Economic Area, and that means membership of the single market and the customs union, but it has flexibility on many other things. So it would be the softest of Brexit options. There possibly would be a consensus within Parliament for that. The problem that Parliament has and why it's been unwilling to effectively make that explicit is that it's not clear there's much of a political consensus within the UK because Norway has freedom of movement and that's one of Theresa May's red lines and her interpretation of the people's will of uh, June 2016 was that there had to be an end to free movement. Yes, having hard borders and it really, you know, closing yeah. the borders really. 
to immigration or reducing it and allowing England and the UK to have greater control over who comes to their country to work, to live, yeah, to, to holiday. Yeah, they're very attracted to Australia's model, uh, Canada's model, where people either buy their way in, in the case of Canada, uh, rich people uh, buy their passports, um, or uh, in the case of Australia, you have a points-based system which allows uh, the government to select on the basis of skills and uh, qualifications. Um, it's also, I think, so that's the that's the sort of ration, that's the economic rationale. The political rationale is, of course, it's all about harking back to the Anglosphere and so on, which, of course, uh, some politicians in Australia are attracted towards as well. But which I yes. think is uh, very retrogressive politics. A lot of Britons at the time of the vote were quite nostalgic for mm. the old Britain, which did have some racist tones about it. But I'm interested in you talk about the fact that, like, we don't know whether the British people would be for a softer Brexit or a, you know, Norway-style agreement. Has polling been done around what the majority of Britons actually think around things like the people's vote, having a second referendum, you know, a softer Brexit. Is there any understanding of the general population's view and whether it's shifted? Because it does seem like anecdotally there are stronger views around this now. Yeah, look, it's and it's shifted in, all, in many different directions. So you're absolutely right, as you said earlier, that some people now regret not voting, particularly the young. They didn't realise what was at stake. <laughs> they believed Boris Johnson and others, I guess, the stuff on the side of the bus. Um, but there are also people who voted Remain and who don't want a second referendum because they just want it to be over and done with. They've had enough of all of these arguments and the way that increasingly British politics has become toxified, if that's, mm. uh, if, if that's a word. Um, so there are people on both sides who've switched, but um, most indications suggest that probably now it would be about 52% Remain and maybe 48% uh, leave. Uh, but that's not a sufficient margin uh, to be very comfortable for those Remainers who think that a second yeah. referendum is is the, the right solution. Mm. Uh, because you can imagine just how nasty the politics of betrayal would figure very highly in a second referendum campaign. We told the people, we told the politicians to deliver Brexit. They failed. They've betrayed the true nation, the will of the true nation, you can imagine. Mm. And there have been some pretty uh, extreme uh, leavers um, who've talked that kind of language of betrayal and mixed in with a kind of toxic English nationalism, I think it would be very dangerous. So there are risks in a second referendum. In terms of um, what the populace, uh, what the what the what the electorate thinks about alternatives to May's deal, like Norway Plus, like a customs union. To be honest, um, most of the indications are that, one, there's no consensus, and so therefore the lack of consensus within Parliament is reflective of the lack of consensus in society. Um, but that, two, probably what uh, most people, if they understand the details of the alternatives... Um, to May's deal, like customs union, Canada, so-called Canada Plus, a free trade deal with a few bits added on, or at the very soft end, Norway. Mm. To the extent that people have any deep understanding of that, which must still be doubted, 
uh, they tend to opt on balance. There tends to be a majority in favour of something soft. Um, after all, um, that's what people who voted, 52% yes. who voted in favour of Brexit, thought they might get yep. uh, back in mid-2016. Um, the Conservative Party, the Leave campaign, told them it would be easy and soft, that mm. the costs would be minimal and the benefits large. Mm. Well, to finish out our conversation then, would it would it just be a great solution to get rid of all the parliamentarians who've been elected because they clearly can't do their job, which is to reach a consensus and compromise on certain points to deliver for what the people want right now, would it be better that the next elected representatives could represent their own constituencies better if they have a clearer understanding of what their constituents want? Yeah. Well, how to forge uh, a consensus is going to be a problem, not just uh, in the event of, say, a longer... Say, May's deal fails, Mm. there's a longer extension, and the EU might rightly say, you need a lot more time to work out what you want, and you have no idea at the moment, or no consensus. Mm. Uh, Plenty of ideas, but no consensus. So you need, let's say, 21 months uh, to the end of, uh, well, the year after next. Um, What would happen during that period? It's not obvious that a another uh, election would solve the problem because the electorate is still deeply split. People have suggested more radical alternatives like citizens' assemblies and so on. So um, these uh, experiments have been tried, including in places like Australia and elsewhere. Um, But that, you know... Referenda are not a traditional part of the way that the UK governs itself, but citizens' assemblies uh, would be a further step away from the traditions of Westminster and Mm. the sovereignty of Parliament. I'm doubtful whether um, anyone would be willing, or at least the leaders of the major parties, because it would be accepting defeat effectively and saying that Westminster politics is broken on this most fundamental question of Britain's future. Yes. Well, I mean, a citizen's jury is really more of a PR exercise in most cases. Exactly, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it working in this And the case. idea that this would change minds of the yeah. European Research Group, the hardliners in the Tory party or the people in the Labour Party uh, who see Europe as the enemy and the friend of rampant capitalism, which includes Jeremy Corbyn, the idea that this would change minds uh, and and heal all the splits in both parties, both major parties, which have grown up and become exacerbated over the past two years, I think is a fantasy. Mm. Well, it seems we've reached a stalemate. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll have to wait and see. No one can predict the future. No. So is this week really make or break? Well, next week? we've said that before. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's getting close to make or break, but um, if, if May is allowed by the Speaker to have a third meaningful vote and it yes. fails, but she gets very close, then, you know, meaningful vote four with another tweak might yeah. happen next week or so. But um, And uh, it depends on what to uh, the European Council meeting on Thursday delivers to May. Um, Mm. You know, there's, I guess, always the possibility of another tweak and some further minor concession on the part of the uh, EU27, but I think it's unlikely. So it may drift into next week, but March 29th is a hard deadline and decisions have to be made and the European Union needs to agree to an extension before that date and they can do it late Uh, before March 29th, a couple of days before, but they cannot do it on March 29th. Put it in your diaries, everyone. (laughs)
I've marked it in mine. <laughs> I hope that you do get into the UK okay Me and too. out of it. <laughs> I'm told British Airways has a special deal that they'll fly oh, really? whatever, but we'll see. That's maybe just a rumour. Yeah, good luck, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming in and explaining what is a very complicated situation at the moment. Yeah, complicated but fun. Thanks, yes, Amy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with Professor Andrew Walter from the University of Melbourne. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.